At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Frightfest preview series 2018, or in fact, we're post-Frightfest now, so it's just Frightfest 2018 series. Um, welcome to the show, Bob Kriskowski. Hello, Bob. Hi, Stuart. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Well, well your, your, film, your film is the, the Man Who Killed Hitler and then The Bigfoot, which is the big, I think it's the longest title at Frightfest. <laughs> it probably is. It, it, I... Uh... We screened the movie in uh, El Paso, Texas, and the title spanned from one side of the marquee right straight to the other side with the letters as closely pressed together as possible. It was a really funny thing to see. <laughs> now, it's not, your fir- it's not your first experience of Fright Fest, is it? You, you worked on um, The Woman as well, didn't you? Which was I did. I did go to Fright Fest, but I know uh, Lucky knows a lot of the people, the programmers and the festival heads, and, and he really loves it there, and he, he, he loves everybody there. So he had spoken really highly of them before I got there. Yeah, yeah. I, I had um, Pauline McIntosh on the podcast talking about her movie White Settlers, which was, I think, a couple of years later. Oh, okay. Yeah, Polly's great. I, she's such a great person, such an awesome actress, and I, I loved working with Lucky and Polly that summer. Indeed, indeed. Now, do you want to give us, a, before we go into any details, do you want to give us people this, a synopsis as to what, what your film's about? Sure. I, I think that the uh, movie is very much what the title says it is, and also it's kind of not that as well. Indeed. I think that's. I think that's a fairly... Although sure, a, a very accurate uh, description of of your film. We'll get into more details about about the writing and developing of that. But first, I want you to recount for me a first or early memory of watching horror films that put you on a path to be a filmmaker, exhibiting your film at Fright Fest. If I go way back, uh, I would think of the two movies that scared me first, mm-hmm. and really excited about the fact that you could scare people watching a movie and uh, one of them 
is definitely King Kong, which is not quite a horror movie, but I think for audiences at that time, it came pretty close. It's certainly a monster movie, and Hitler and Bigfoot has a lot of elements that are in the tradition of a monster movie. Yeah. And so I, I would say King Kong, um, I just remember my heart racing. I, I probably was four or five years old, and it's one of my earliest movie memories. And then I would also say... The Wizard of Oz, which isn't a horror movie at all, but it uses horror imagery all over that movie to to alienate Dorothy and to fill her with fear and then to give you the elation of hope as the movie progresses. And I just remember the tornado just being like the scariest thing I'd, I'd ever seen. So uh, neither of those are necessarily horror, but those were the first things in film that really scared me and uh realize that you could use fear as a way of uh, bringing the audience to something joyful. Uh, I think that you kind of have to go through that gauntlet. So those two. And then I think if you want a, you know, a true horror movie that made a gigantic impact, it would be John Carpenter's The Thing. I saw that just a little too, too young. Mm-hmm. And, um, it just blew me away. Everything about it, the intensity of it, how real it all felt, how all of the characters seemed to know each other and have history. Um, and then just the creature effects being just, just disgusting and, and horrendous and, uh, it being something that you could just, just barely believe could happen. If you believe in, in the paranormal and UFOs and, uh, aliens, to have an alien that exists in another human being or in a dog, that's just scared me to death. So those were those were probably the big ones. There's a there's a film theorist um, called I'm going to guess his name is Robert Agar. I think it is from Liverpool in the northwest of England. He does he has a YouTube channel. He does lots of kind of subtextual sort of analysis, and he he sort of imagined a sequel to the thing. His view his view being that the thing is the ultimate antagonist mm, yeah it, it, it i mean elaborate that from his perspective a little more i'd like to hear a little bit more about that well, I from, have my- from what i remember it's just the idea that obviously something that's indestructible and can take any organic form yeah how the fuck do you ever spot it in reality yeah, you don't you're doomed and if that thing gets off the arctic base yeah uh, you know it's all over and there's something really nihilistic and playful about the end of that movie these two characters you can't you can't tell if it's even with either of them um and they're both just going to kind of wait each other out and the movie ends and it's so unpleasant and i and i know that at the time that hurt i don't know if it hurt the movie but i know that the movie didn't do very well in its initial release and i think it's just because audiences were in the 80s, so many movies were, were and, and some of my favorite movies, they were extremely hopeful and up and positive, and uh, that one just... I think the world wanted E.T., didn't it, really, Bob? I think, I think the world well, wanted E.T. when the thing come around. There you go. There you go. And people <laughs> were, they were not ready to receive a movie like The Thing at that moment. But then in the 90s or the late 80s, uh, with VHS, I, I mean, that's certainly when I saw it um, with my friend Dan. We were kids, and it was just a revelation. I'd never seen anything like it. And and I think that uh, it's masterfully made. I mean, it's, it's one of John Carpenter's best-looking movies. It's directed flawlessly. It has killer uh, matte paintings and visual effects. I mean, everything about that movie. I, I, I think it may be, you know, one or two best horror movies ever made. 
No, and and, and, and it's a, it's a real lesson, I think, in um, in in this term that we that, that that sales agents now have of the contained horror. It's right. It, it manages right. to be a big cinematic experience, whereas the footprint of the films about what about half a football pitch? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, let's uh, let's get into your film, The Man Who Killed Hitler, and then The Bigfoot. Um, now you wrote this, so do you want to do you want to give us a kind of the kernel of the idea that, that, that sparked what became this film? Where, where did you start with this for you? Uh, I was writing the script. I still was, I, you know, I was living at home at the time. I was, uh, I had just begun college. I was studying journalism. I was working at two newspapers um, and also at a video store. So I was, you know, between a lot of jobs. And then I was also a landscaper in the summer months and I was writing a lot and just, just putting down ideas. And, and one night this idea of a, a man killing Hitler um, could be almost like a James Bond opening. And so I wrote the opening much like you would write a James Bond opening, but then I had no, go. it was a great 10 pages and it was, <laughs> It was really fun, but after you've killed Hitler, there's no, there's nowhere to go. Yeah, yeah, you've uh, turned it up to eleven at that point, haven't you? Exactly, and so I started thinking, well, what, what else could this hero do? And I love pulp adventures, and, and I, I, I just thought it was like a flash. Just he could, he could kill Bigfoot. That, that could be interesting, but you know, it, it has to feel honest and it has to feel like that could happen in some version of reality. Kind of like what we were talking about with the thing where mm. you just believe it um, because it, the movie takes itself just seriously enough. And so um, I think beginning to think about that idea and how those things could come together. Some of the, some of the story elements that wound up in the final version um, kind of came to me all on that night. And I remember finishing those 10 pages and I, I put the title page on the man who killed Hitler and then the Bigfoot and that never changed. Um, so that so was, you, that... so you, you, you found the other end of the inspiration at the point when you did the 10 pages, the, the Bigfoot was very much lingering around when you, this idea first came to you. Yeah. I, I, I think that the, the thought process was, um, he could kill Bigfoot, you know, what would top that? What would be next? And I thought, well, Hitler was a monster, so it could be a monster. And, and I think that that was the connection to Bigfoot is that this, this guy kills two monsters got and you, one of them you. be a human and one of them is a, you know, a mythical beast. Yeah. I read, I read, I read, a, I read, I, I, I didn't see, yeah. There's a, there's a book called Lord Horror, which is a kind of satire of Lord Haw-Haw, the famous um, traitor who sort of um, pretended to uh, be telling the British, you know, nice things about the Germans. Yeah. And, um, and the guy that wrote the book just said, you know, it was that idea that once once we, we, we understood the concept of Hitler and what he was about, then from that point on, the idea that a werewolf or Frankenstein or Dracula was somehow scary. When we there you go. Uh, the that makes that 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 was the exact train of thought. It was this idea that uh, if a human being can be this evil and can essentially be a monster, then why can't you connect this hero to another monster that that doesn't exist for mm -hmm. all purposes? I mean, why can't you go there? 
And then it became kind of a writing experiment to how do you tie those things all together so that, again, it, it, it just makes enough sense that you buy it. No, totally, totally. And, and, and I think that's, you know, in, in the review that I wrote, it's this, this, you could come to this film with the, with the preconception that you're about to see, you know, like a, a cartoon rewriting of history a la Inglorious Bastards that Tarantino did. Mm-hmm. But, but, in, but it couldn't be further from the truth, um, that, that preconception, because what you do, I feel, is you tell the story of a, of a, of a man looking at his own mortality and reflecting on a, on, on a, on a glorious life by any, anybody else's standards. But, sure. But at that moment when you're sat on your own eating a TV dinner and nobody's with you, all that glory doesn't matter. And so there's no. this, it's very, it's a very poignant film for such a hysterical title. If, if, if that doesn't, that's not meant to cause any offense, but you know, it's like, yeah, I think, I think once it became that he would kill Hitler and Bigfoot, mm. you have those two things. You can't, you can't top it anywhere else in the story. It's not going to happen or I'm, I'm just not up to the challenge. And mm. so the intimacy of the movie became uh, critical that that was the only other way to go with this movie unless it was just a full-blown uh, farce which I didn't want to do and and I, I you know what what Hitler did was you know universally terrible and 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 was something that I didn't want to make light of mm. and was something that I wanted to illuminate in the movie and I mean there's a, there's a million other movies that have done it extraordinarily well and they and they uh, take it with the exact depth depth of seriousness that you have to take that. And and I felt like with this movie, it could kind of be um, more like a, uh, a parable or a fable where we explore uh, what he did and the notion that an idea can be a monster as well and that this monster lives on. So again, trying to top those two elements seemed completely useless. So I just, started to focus on the intimacy of, of the lead character and, and, and what he'd gone through and, and the toll that it takes on a person when they, when they take a life or if they commit an act of violence, no matter how important or well-intentioned or, or whatever that might be, I think that there's an exchange rate there and that takes something from somebody. And, and, and that became, I think, the, the most important thing that I was trying to, to say, if anything, with this movie. Yeah, because heroes often behave in the same way that psychopaths behave, don't they, in, mov- in movie land? They don't seem to see the in value. Mo- in movie land, yeah. 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 I mean, every now and again, you get a, a hero that acts exactly the way I would expect a human to act. I, actually, there's uh, did you see Captain Phillips with Tom Hanks? Yeah, 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 yeah. His reaction to all of the events, he goes into total shock when everything's when everything's over and he's getting rescued. That's when you see him at his most human. He's he he loses his calm and cool and the collect that he's had through the entire movie, and he's just shaking, and he's in shock. I don't know exactly how Tom Hanks did that. I don't know how he brought himself to that, but that's the most honest part of that whole movie, and that's the type of hero I'm much more interested in in, in looking at. Um, or a movie like Unforgiven, which which completely uh, takes the notion of the noble Western and just shows that everybody's kind of petty and ugly and they're all just trying to survive and that there's goodness and bad people and there's badness and good people. And, and I think Unforgiven is really, really unique for that because it takes a really daring perspective 
um, of the noble American Western and it, and it, and it twists it into something that I think is a lot more human and real. I don't know if there's a hero in that movie. I, I, I don't, I don't think there is. No, no, I think you're right. And, 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 and that gives me, you, you, uh, you cast Sam Elliott as the, as the senior version of, of the character Calvin Barr, um, who, who, who is, who to me on screen looks like the, the noble American, if there's a noble American Western and he, he, he has the, he sort of carry his presence on screen sort of screams to me as someone looking across the pond, very much that American archetypal hero. And it was interesting to see that archetypal hero be deconstructed to much more poignant and more vulnerable moments in, in his, in his existence. Right. The, um, the biggest influence on this movie outside of any, any film or, or uh, book was Norman Rockwell paintings. The Norman Rockwell museum is about an hour from my house in uh, the Berkshires. Um, and I've spent a lot of time. I live in a small town in Massachusetts. So that, that Norman Rockwell quality um, that we get, we, we get a sense of America through his paintings that was something that I really wanted to try to convey with this movie. And, and that begins with casting your, your lead. And so Sam looks like he could have fallen out of a Norman Rockwell painting. He's <laughs> tall, he's lank, he has uh, somewhat exaggerated features and he looks incredibly noble. And then you meet him and he's just a, just a very, very good, decent, honest person who cares about people. And so he personally exemplifies a lot of the things that we were trying to say with this movie and so once sam was on board and involved you know and, and with this this norman rockwell theory behind it that the production designer brett hatcher and that the costume designers carol cutshaw and michael bevins um we all sought to give the movie that spirit um i think that there's segments of the movie that you could watch muted and they just have that that classic kind of american um, mythology about it. And that's, you know, that's, that's Sam and then the rest of the team all pulling together to try to approximate that thing. Yeah. I mean, there's two, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Rockwell then, because I mean, in, in, in the review that I wrote for Britflix, I mentioned sort of two arguably innocuous scenes, but, but they are all about that. The, the point, the poignancy of who he is. So you have you have on, on one hand the kind of introductory scene where he's swapping barroom philosophy with the barman. Yep. And and there's not a lot going on. It's, just, it's not it's, you know you're not you're not your eyes aren't darting around. Um, sure. But but you're getting a lot of information at the same time. You're feeling like you're being you're 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 finding out who he is in the way that this is this is all panning out. And then uh, the sort of other extreme when we've got to know him, you then have a and it is it's. It, it's sort of I do I do love that idea of something happening once, but me as the audience thinking, well, that's obviously happened tens of times. Uh, when right. he sits down with his TV dinner, and you go, "There's a man thinking about." Even though he doesn't, he obviously doesn't go, "I'm alone, me." <laughs> <laughs> but the film is just screaming at you. There's this is what alone looks like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I used to work at a a nursing home, and I know exactly what that version of alone looks like, and it was. You know, that that's something that I'll never forget. It was a very poor nursing home. It was where people sent their 
relatives or their parents that really couldn't afford anywhere else. Mm. And I just worked there as a janitor, but I would get to talk to those people and spend time with them. I had a huge VHS collection, so I would make movie recommendations and I'd bring them in. And I, I know that there were times where the only person that was visiting was the janitor. It was, you know, me and, and some of the nurses who really cared about them. So I, I, I know what that type of loneliness looks like. And, and when I was making this movie and specifically the scenes you're talking about, I know that it pushes the audience just a little bit because we go back to his loneliness a couple times and mm. really have to look at that. And, and that's taxing. That's not something the audience typically wants to do or a place that they want to be. They want to get on with the adventure. But I thought that it was really important to remind people that this is that there's a lot of people out there that are feeling this way and it doesn't matter if they served in World War II or if they were, you know, they worked in a hat shop, there, there are people out there that are that are feeling this way right now. And that's as American as any other element of this movie is that there are people that when they get to a certain age, they get a little forgotten. And I, I, I wanted people to think about that. Yeah, no, I think that arguably that's probably one of the most frightening things about your film, in a way, is that you, you, you portray that so brilliantly that... It's 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 a stark reminder to us all. Well, I I, I just recently rewatched for like the tenth or fifteenth time being there, um, the Hal Ashby movie, mm. and um, the way that he portrays his his it's not even loneliness because he's such a simple character that I'm not sure he's able to feel lonely, but his humanity through scenes of him being alone that aren't very kinetic, they're not energetic shots they're not meant to ignite any excitement in you it's meant to lull you into a sense of of this character's isolation and there's a there's a way to do that and that has a function in film but i think it forces you to a place that might be a little uncomfortable and so um there's a couple places in the movie where we pushed it just as about just about as far as <laughs> we were willing to go and then joe kramer you know, uh, underscores that with some really beautiful music. Um, and, and it's meant to illustrate that, that isolation that he's going through. And again, that he, he's been essentially forgotten. Now, now one of the things about the film is that you, you, you we, we basically straddle two timelines. We have, we have the, the, the daring do adventures in world war two and going about the, the showing us the killing of Hitler, as it were. And um, and then we have the present day, which is sort of drawing a picture of who Calvin Barr's become, and then the the new the new mission before you know before all all else goes uh, mm -hmm. with Bigfoot. Um, so with those two very different worlds, as it were, what what was your initial sort of conversations like with your cinematographer about how you wanted to a differentiate them, or or b what were the key things you wanted to make sure you were showing in the way that you photographed the film? Sure. Um, Alex Vendler and I had a lot of conversations about how we would differentiate the timelines without it turning into a pastiche and without mm. it um, being so different that it's that it feels like two radically different um, periods in time. We wanted, if anything, young bar and old bar to feel very connected. So that meant having a different flavor for each timeline, but only just at the edge of perception so that it's not um, an extremely radical difference so that the audience doesn't feel like they're constantly being jerked back and forth. We wanted that to feel um, 
very fluid as we move from one timeline to the next. So um, we had some discussions about how we do how we would do that in the most radical ways and how we would do that in the most subtle ways. And so what we essentially wound up doing is um, a, a, a radical uh, version of that, but then pulling it back in the color correction to the very edge of perception so that each timeline has its own unique flavor, but they're still existing in the same world. And that was differenti differentiating the, uh, the film grain for each timeline. And then uh, Alex um, wrote uh, an algorithm that uh, approximated um, the kind of clay skin tones and the more hyper colorization of uh, technicolor and then pulled that again just back to the point where you'd start to notice it. So the 40 sections have this uh, very old fashioned, but very subtle technicolor look and the 1987 yeah. parts are very much meant to look like a movie would look in terms of uh, film grain. Um, lighting conception and um, uh, color timing that you would see in a film in the mid eighties. So, um, and again, it wasn't, it wasn't um, to try to do a, a hip cool version of what the 1980s looked like in 2018. We were mm -hmm. trying hard to make it look like a film would look in, uh, you know, 1985 or so. Just, just as a layperson, you said you said he wrote an algorithm for the for the Technicolor. What, is that is that a no, is that normal for for the cinematographer? No, uh, Alex is a you know he's he is uh, uh, kind of a visual scientist and he's a total gearhead. He's constantly fixing motorcycles and, <laughs> and he um, collaborates closely with um, very talented uh, cinematographer named Steve Yedlin. Um, who shoots a lot of Ryan Johnson's films. Okay. And uh, Steve came into the color correction and um, actually uh, brought some code of his own. And then uh, Aiden Stanford was our uh, color correctionist who works in coordination with these guys. And um, he was one of the key restorationists on um, uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Um, so he really understands how to... Uh, look backwards into film history and do something that's honest to that look without drawing too much attention to it. So uh, those three guys had a lot of conversations about this stuff and Alex um, takes the visual science really seriously and, mm. and, and thought something I think really special here because it's not so flamboyant that I think anybody even notices that it's more of a feeling that you have when you're watching it, that it, that it could have fallen out of uh, the, the mid eighties and, and it doesn't feel like we were trying to approximate something in a, in a uh, slavish way. No, no, it sounds, I mean, it's, um, I, I was fortunate enough to have Larry Smith uh, on the podcast who did, uh, he DLP'd on Eyes Wide Shut with Kubrick, but he's, He's worked with Kubrick since the 70s and he talked about um, when they were doing Barry Lyndon and they were doing tests with candlelight and NASA lenses. Yes, yeah. Because Kubrick only wanted daylight and candlelight because that's what people at the time Barry Lyndon was set would have experienced. And he didn't want yeah. to film to bring anything artificial. 
Yeah, and, and to to do that on film must have been just a, an incredible <laughs> challenge. I can only imagine how many candles were hidden all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Now, there's a there's with 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 the with the um, and I think with what you've just described, there is a kind of rhythm that you get into watching watching your film as it's as it segues and flows in and out of of what is the existence in in sort of in sort of Sam Elliott's present and then going into uh, Aidan Turner's portrayal of the history of Calvin Barr. Um, and then Ron Livingston turns up. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really, it's a real jarring moment in terms of how you've, how you've read the film to that point, because it's, um, it, it really sort of turns it up a gear, doesn't it? In many senses. Um, yeah. When, when, when Ron Livingston comes, that's, the movie will live or die on that scene with the agents coming in and sitting at the dining room table with Barr and them all discussing uh, everything the movie is about is yeah. all that, that that core section of the movie and all of the belief the audience is ever going to give you needs to take place in that conversation. So there's an enormous amount of weight there. And I felt like when that, knock on the door happens and Sam answers it, who is the person that's going to give us the most goodwill from the audience to buy this next section? And it, it, it was always in my mind, it was Ron Livingston. Really? And I, it was, it was, oh, it was, it was Ron Livingston for, for a couple years knowing, you know, once we realized we were going to make this movie, it was very apparent to me that I wanted that door to open and it to be him. And, he really, really understood the movie. He had uh, great ideas for that section when, when they are, when they're all sitting at the table, how to make it even more real. He was giving Sam so much to work with, even when Ron wasn't on camera. Um, and I think he came to do something special there. And, and again, doing it in a subtle way uh, without drawing too much attention. Um, it was really, really amazing that he agreed to, to be in this movie. And I think he's really, special in that moment that him Rizwan Manji and Sam that they're just sitting at a dining room table the the camera work is extremely simple um and it's just the words on the page and what they're doing with it it's no no it is it's it's that great thing that you know sort of re-emphasizes your love of love of film is that when drama happens it, it just has to be what you feel it's not always about absolute spectacle is it not for cinema no, I think the biggest chill anybody gets in the entire movie is when the when the camera is slowly dollying in on Sam while he's talking about Nazism. <laughs> uh, I think that that's the most chilling section of the film. I think it, it's the most honest, and it's because Sam believes every word that he's saying, and he came to Massachusetts with something that he really wanted to say right there, and he was just giving it all he all he had, and and it was just sitting there watching it, 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 it was, there was something creepy about it because it shouldn't be real. It, it, it's complete nonsense. And there's Sam and he believes it. And the whole crew standing around pin drop silent. And we all believe what he's saying. That's, that's when film does something really special and unique. And that's completely commanded by Sam that he owns that, that moment. He, you know, in, in, almost every way he owns this movie. I mean, he's, he's, he's so, so raw and, and 
unique in this movie. I haven't seen Sam in a role like this. Mm. It, it kind of felt like something that that he was always I, that there was a, a I don't know something cosmic that drew us all together that we all really wanted to do this exact thing. And 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 how often is it that the director of the movie or that the actor, I mean, that if you were to talk to Sam, he would say the same thing. We, we all got to make the thing that we wanted to make. There was no interference and we didn't really have to compromise it. It it is what it is. So if somebody likes the movie, that's a wonderful thing. And if they don't, we can at least say, well, you you know, you're looking at the exact thing it was meant to be. So it's okay if, if somebody doesn't. No, I mean, from, from a personal point of view, it's, it's one of those films that I that I that I thoroughly enjoyed, but equally I can't wait to show my dad. Ah, uh, that that makes me happy to hear that. That's that's very much the, the type of movie I was hoping this would be. And I mean, I I made this movie in in a major way because because of my grandfather. It was mm. and he passed away just a few months before the movie uh, happened, so he didn't get to see that and. It was his decency and his kindness and the way that he, he the, the things that he admired in people were always who they were, not what they had. Mm. And, and he would never have been proud of me because I got to make a movie. He was proud of me because he liked me. And, and <laughs> I was never disappointed that he didn't get to see it because I know that that ultimately wouldn't have changed the way that he felt about me. And that's the exact same attitude he, he had about his entire family. So everybody felt special in, in everything that they were doing because he, he, he believed in people. And, and so I, I would have loved it if he could have seen it, but I, I think he knew what I was, what I was trying to do. And I think that um, if you want to watch this movie with your, with your dad, that that's exactly kind of the hope that I had that people would want to watch this with their parents and, and, and that they, they'd see something in each other here. I mean, when when you were when you were in post production on this film, were you were you aware that the sort of the levels of sort of humility you're exploring with this against the backdrop of what was happening in America politically? With I didn't, I didn't write the movie with of course that because it had been so many years, mm. um, but I, I just I had felt that there was a, a national mood that has been turning um, in a strange direction for the last decade so it was definitely in the back of my head that this was an opportunity to to say something mm. and without without preaching it would just be a part of the movie and, and we, we would never have to say aloud why some of these themes are here if if you're a, a, a good person and you care about people I, I assumed it would just it would just get through to those people mm. so um it's strange. You're basically asking, was there an intention there to? Oh no, no, no! I wasn't. I was more saying, did you? Were you? Did you begin to see what else was in the film? Because obviously, you've if you've been developing this for a while, and then at the time when you're bringing this together and it's produced and you're editing it together, and the political backdrop that's happening is is devoid of humility. <laughs> the, um, the the Charlottesville riots happened, I think, I want to say August 12th, I could be mm. mistaken. And we were shooting Sam's scene about Nazism with Ron Livingston at almost that exact same moment. Wow. And Sam said that day, he said, I, I, we really need to, to, to hit this one home. He said, this is our moment to to say something. And the fact that, that Nazism has kind of come back into the mainstream somehow is really, you know, shocking <clears throat> 
wise, that's not something that you can plan for or anticipate. So um, I was aware of all these things happening around the movie, but I, but there was, there was no, there was no intention there. It was just, just organic to the thing that we were. Oh no. I mean, I interviewed uh, Simon Rumley about his film Crowhurst, which is a period (laughs) film set in late sixties, Britain about crazy sea adventures that idiots went on when they were going to circumnavigate the globe on their own. And it's the story of one man's fateful journey and he never returned. But but interviewing him, I'd said like you know this is this is a Brexit movie, <laughs> even right. though even though it was never written that way, and it, but but obviously it's it's hard, you know the fact that the things that it's beginning to say, and you you can only see it through the the prism of the world you you are currently in, yeah, and the idea of delude, I mean a deluded nation like Britain, thinking that it, any anybody with just a bit of daring do could uh, could sell around the world. <laughs> is, is kind of and is kind of emblematic of the attitude of we don't need anybody we can trade with the world, right. bring, bring it on globe that we've yep. cur- that I'm currently experiencing today. and and it's I think it may, and and often that might be to do with like me as the viewer looking yep. looking to find things that resonate and stuff in the same way that I thought yours yours resonates with that as well. I guess yeah I wouldn't believe for one minute you were trying to wag a finger at me going the world <laughs> the world's better with humility Stuart. I mean, right. it's, it's no, like no. I'm glad to find I'm glad to find films that want to say that, and and, right. and I can't help but reflect and go, and I wish more people could hear this in the way they see the world, so to speak. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, I, I, I yeah, I'm I'm in agreement with, with with everything you're saying. I mean, it's it it's one of those things I think that um, if you leave a movie with enough elements that are open-ended, you give the audience an opportunity to feel like a participant and they will bring whatever they're feeling to it. And and this movie leaves just enough open that I, I, I really wanted to invite the audience to be uh, sovereign in the storytelling so that when they leave, there's enough elements that they can talk about with their friends or their colleagues and, and share ideas and opinions. Well, what do you, what do you think this meant or why, why didn't this question get answered? And then that discussion happens and you might illuminate something that's much more meaningful than whatever I could have thrown in there. So I, I tried to leave just enough open so that, that people could, have something to talk about on the ride home or in the days after seeing it. Those are my, that's, that's my favorite type of movie. So mm, no, I totally agree uh, with, 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 uh, with shooting the film then what was, what given, given we live in a world of um, finite resources and finite people. Um, mm-hmm. What, what for you was your sort of, what, what do you remember being like that sort of lasting achievement of what you were able to achieve with the resources you had that felt when you were looking at it on the page, you were like, God, how are we going to do that? Um, I mean, it—it's a—it sounds like I'm making a joke, but it's really everything. It's every scene in the movie because with 25 days to shoot it, and it was extremely complex. I was warned going in to to get ready to start cutting some of your fingers off. You're gonna, you're, you know, you're gonna have to kill some babies in this movie, and everybody warned me that you know you're gonna lose ten scenes or you're gonna lose fifteen scenes, and you're just gonna have to adapt on the fly. Wherever those things happen, they're, they're just gonna happen, and you're gonna have to figure out a way to continue to tell the story um, without being able to shoot those elements and. The most incredible thing is that through 
incredible scheduling from Elaine Gibson and really, really intelligent policing of the money by Louise Lovegrove, we shot everything. The entire movie is there. We have two sequences that we cut out of the film that um, were extremely ambitious that just didn't need to be there. One of them involving a 1940s passenger plane um, and the other one, uh, a couple grizzly bears. So um, I think the, the thing that blows me away the most is that we, we captured it all and we had a team that was able to do that. I, that that's really rare. I don't, I don't think that that, for, for me being a fil first time filmmaker, um, to have that type of a crew, I think that's the, the thing I'm most amazed by. So it's, 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 it's the fact that all of those sequences, because they were all important in their own way. They never felt like there was a scene I could just cut out and do without. They all felt like they were in a conversation with one another. Mm -hmm. So once the team, I think, realized that, they, they came around to defend that notion and to find a way to make it happen. So whenever there was a quote-unquote compromise, it was really just a creative pivot to a plan B that we'd already discussed a month or two prior, or in some cases a year prior. So that that's the thing that I'm most amazed by. I, I had a incredible crew that was able to pull this entire thing off. Now it's always, it's always good to, to sort of speak to people when they've made their, this is your first directorial feature film, isn't it? From a director. Yeah. Anyway. <clears throat> They've done a short film, uh, with puppets, uh, so very, very different. <laughs> so, so with that, just I mean, in that privileged position to sort of say to that filmmaker that's listening now, who's who's maybe building up to or developing their first feature, what mm -hmm. what, what would be a, a key lesson learned for you that you you, you imagine you're going to take forward into future productions you 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 end up helming? Well, I'm going to try much much harder not to be so afraid. I was I was so sick with fear for the for the month or two leading up to the shoot and then when we got into the shoot i calmed right down because it's not that i'd forgotten but it's that i i, I didn't trust myself i guess to to let go and realize that when you hire a crew that you believe in and and that are professionals at their jobs a lot of the weight is going to get lifted from you and you'll be able to focus on the primary tasks that you're supposed to be focused on. And as a producer on the film, um, that gave me a lot of other obligations that I had to keep a watchful eye on. But mm. once all of these professionals came around in the month before production began, there was all these pressure valves starting to get released and you realize that you're not alone in every department you have somebody taking care of uh, a plethora of jobs and that they're all going to do those jobs to the best of their abilities because they believe in the thing that they're doing. So I would, I would tell another filmmaker to not be so afraid, but to make sure you hire people you really believe in. And then the other thing that, that was the, the absolute biggest boon to this movie was that we had planned very, very carefully well in advance. There were, hundreds of storyboards, there were conceptual designs. Uh, the instant we found out we might be able to make the movie, we just proceeded as if we were making the movie. So we started making every phone call with all of the people that we knew 
we'd have the most difficult tasks to accomplish. We started talking with them up to a year, year and a half out. Okay. Uh, even if those were just conceptual conversations, even if they were a 10 minute phone call, mm. they saved us hours when we actually got to set uh, because so many of the problems were, were pre-solved or there would be um, a pivot that we had in mind if, if things went south. We'd have a, an alternate option to try something. Well, look, sir, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about the man who killed Hitler and then the Bigfoot. Um, thank you. It only gives me to say thank you very much for your time on the Britflix podcast. Okay, and uh, I hope you have a good afternoon, and I look forward to crossing paths with you again at some point. Indeed, indeed. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.